Well, a very warm welcome to you again. This is a reason for hope, and we are live with you for the next hour to receive your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right. If you have questions about the Bible, maybe a verse or passage of Scripture that you'd like to delve into more, maybe there's something you're going through in your world and would like a, a, a biblical perspective, maybe world events from a biblical perspective, really any question. As long as you know we're going to delve into the Bible to find those answers, that's what we're here to do live for the next hour. We're very glad that you're joining us today in the studio with me. I'm Dave Robson. I'll be hosting and fielding your questions. Is Pastor Sean Richards. Still no beard. Stubble coming back, though. How are you doing? Good. And I'd like to just take the moment today to thank all of you manufacturers of podiums. That's a product I can stand behind. Wah. Wah, wah. That's a that's a good dad joke to uh, to start us off today. Also, and pastor joke <laughs> and pastor joke. Yes, and Both. speaking of pastors and dads, <laughs> yes, Pastor Scott Richards is with us too. How are you doing today? <laughs> I've been known to play both roles from time to time. Yes, I'm, I'm doing fantastic, Dave. It's always great to be here, uh, digging into God's Word yep. and uh, finding out what's on the hearts and minds of uh, our listeners out there. Yeah, uh, it's always uh, an interesting surprise to see how God is going to lead this broadcast so that's right uh, looking forward to how things unfold me me too and as pastor scott mentioned this, this show is guided by your questions so we never quite know where it's gonna go but please do send your questions in there's there's no dumb question or wrong question as long as it's a sincere question so please don't be shy send your questions in on the chat functions and our email address let me know let me i can, I can never say that Allow me to let you know, <laughs> I don't know what I'm trying to say, where those are and what those is. I don't know why I have... Professionalism is our most important product. I don't know why I have trouble saying that phrase. For some reason, that sentence doesn't make sense in my brain. But uh, of course, if you're seeing us and hearing us, you found a way to join us. If you listen to us on the radio, on Reach Radio, uh, you are listening to our last show pre-recorded. But on our other platforms, we are live as can be. Uh, Reason for Hope is a, a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship. So you can find us at our church website there at calvarychristianfellowship.com. Follow the Watch Live uh, tab and you'll find us there. There's a chat box there that you can send your questions in. I'll be monitoring those as we go along. Also on Facebook, Calvary Christian Fellowship, you'll find us there. Same deal. On YouTube, we are A Reason for Hope. That's the name of the channel, A Reason for Hope. You'll find us there on YouTube. We have an app that you can find in your app store for your mobile device or on Roku and Apple TV as well. And our email address, in case you want to do it that old-fashioned way, is questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com. You can also follow Pastor Scott on Twitter at ScottR4H. That's Scott, letter R, number four letter h on twitter and yeah. he posts um <laughs> <laughs> highlights from the show and uh what is it you said yesterday what is the, the phrase uh, uh, little snippets of snark snippets yes. of snark yeah so in case there's <laughs> to, not to, enough snippets to salt of snark. and season your sensibilities <laughs> whoa yeah. i won't even attempt to say that yeah. but if you're a twitter person then you can follow pastor scott on there as well i think i mentioned everything like i say please do send your questions in as we go along i'll be fielding those and all that being said Whew, Pastor Scott, would you like to pray for us as we delve into the show? I would sure love to do that. Well, do that. Yeah. Knock yourself out. <laughs> Lord, it is such a wonderful thing that we can enter into your gates with thanksgiving and your courts with praise. And to know that according to your word, because of what Jesus has done for us, paying the price for our sins, 
that we are welcomed into your forever family, that uh, we can boldly come before your throne of grace and receive uh, help in time of need. Lord, uh, what wonderful help you give us in the wisdom that we find within your word. Lord, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is that bread of life that satisfies and water to our thirsty souls. So, Lord, through the power of your spirit, I pray that you would minister it. I pray that you would guide our conversation. And whatever questions we end up answering, Lord, we pray that they would be those that, that you would choose for the program. And we pray that uh, as we offer answers, uh, we would uh, be able to speak the truth in love and that people would find in this program a, a place of green pasture and still water where their souls can be restored because you're here, Lord. That's what we long to uh, experience, and, and Lord, we long to see you glorified. So bring honor to your name, we pray, as the broadcast unfolds. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. True. Amen to that. So, um, Pastor Scott, I understand you have some updates for us. I know we touched on it a bit yesterday, but some world events and yeah. elections going on. Yeah, well, as our uh, our good friend Don Stewart uh, reminds us, uh, when it comes to biblical prophecy, uh, it's very clear that uh, Israel is God's hour hand, uh, Jerusalem is the minute hand, and the Temple Mount is the second hand. And we have a prophecy update that I think uh, touches on uh, all of these. Uh, we told you a bit uh, yesterday about the initial uh, projected results of the election going on in Israel, uh, that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party uh, was uh, trying to uh, put together a coalition of representatives in the Jewish Knesset. We'll explain a little bit about parliamentary rule, that in the Knesset there's 120 seats, and uh, whichever uh, group can put together a ruling coalition of over 60 seats. you got to have 61 seats in your coalition. Then you can form a government and appoint your leader as the prime minister. Well, there have been five successive uh, campaigns that have gone on that have failed to produce said results in Israel, uh, largely uh, triggered by the fact that Benjamin Netanyahu, who has served as the Israeli prime minister longer than any other prime minister in Israel's history, has been dogged by charges of corruption and bribery that has uh, thrown things into quite a spin. And so uh, we've seen caretaker governments and uh, governments that have lasted just a bit and then uh, uh, people will defect and throw the thing back to uh, the voters in Israel. Well, uh, we told you uh, that the Israeli elections took place on Monday, uh, that uh, on the broadcast yesterday, the uh, votes were being counted. But according to exit polling, uh, it appeared that Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition that he was putting together of his Likud party and a, a couple of blocks that had surprisingly gained traction as uh, rightist-leaning religious parties in Israel was going to have enough representatives behind it that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu would be able to form a government. On our last program, uh, we mentioned to you that uh, it, it looked like uh, there would be enough for 61 or 62 members of the Knesset to form this party. Well, uh, going into uh, the broadcast tonight, uh, 90% of the votes have been counted, and it does appear that uh, not only is Benjamin Netanyahu going to be the next uh, prime minister of Israel, but he is also going to be governing with some 65 potentially uh, seats 
in uh, in the the government. I guess mm-hmm. to put that in a way that we in the United States can understand it, uh, you know, we know that uh, if uh, you get to say fifty senators in the U.S. Senate. Uh, that's the break-even point, and then the vice president casts the deciding vote, which is really where our government has been. Well, imagine one political party or another having, uh, say, 55 uh, U.S. senators. They can pretty much uh, assume that they can go ahead and pass legislation uh, without uh, uh, much hindrance. Well, that's exactly what's going on uh, in Israel. But to get to uh, that uh, 65 uh, vote level, a couple of very interesting individuals have uh, risen uh, to uh, the uh, top of uh, consciousness in Israel. The Religious Zionist Party, uh, their leader, a fellow by the name of Itamar Ben-Giver, uh, is uh, one of those individuals and a uh, very interesting character in Israeli politics. You think American politics are wild and, and wacky at times. Boy, Israeli politics can really uh, uh, put on quite a show for you. Uh, Itamar Ben-Giver, even about uh, eight months or so ago, was considered radioactive uh, because of some of his quote-unquote extremist uh, views, a a non-electable individual, uh, certainly not somebody that would make up, uh, say, a a cabinet-level leader within Israel. Well, apparently, all of that, is changing uh, because his religious Zionist party has allied with Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, it does appear that Itamar Ben-Giver is going to uh, be appointed the public security minister in an upcoming Netanyahu government. Now, his policies as public security minister would include five elements, according to the Jerusalem Post. Uh, He said uh, he would change the rules of engagement for policemen and soldiers. He would have immunity for policemen and soldiers for any action taken against terrorists. He would reduce the rights of terrorists in jails. He would treat agricultural crime as terrorism. Uh, That is uh, when, say, uh, the Hamas people in Gaza float over uh, balloons with incendiary devices with the idea of setting Israeli crops on fire. Uh, That would be, according to him, a terroristic attack and not just, say, vandalism, uh, as it's been largely treated to this point. It's Uh, also common internationally when Muslim groups that want to terrorize people, say, for instance, in France, they'll poison water supplies and so forth and do so specifically in agricultural areas so that they would make the food unusable. That's another form of jihad by disrupting economies. Yeah, another thing he uh, said that he was going to do was increase punishment for criminal demands for protection from business owners. Now, this would apply in cities like Nablus, which have Jewish and uh, Muslim populations, the, uh, uh, the, even these uh, cities that are ostensibly under the control of the Palestinian Authority will have Jewish populations, but uh, Jewish shop owners would have individuals uh, visit them and say, uh, you know, that's a really nice business you got there. It'd be a shame if anything happened to it, that kind of shakedown sort of thing. He would uh, come against that. He would also uh, allow anyone with basic combat training Uh, to be able to carry a weapon in terms of defense. Uh, The interesting thing about uh, Ben Giver is that he never served in the Israeli military for a really interesting reason. He was a part of an ultra-Orthodox sect 
that believed that uh, Israel was not a legitimate government, uh, that the only legitimate government of Israel would come when Messiah himself would come Mm. and form that. And because Israel was a secular government, they wanted nothing to do with it. Well, I guess uh, Itamar Ben-Giver has changed his position and uh, come to the conclusion that if uh, you can't beat him, join him. And so uh, this uh, this coalition that has uh, has centered around him uh, is an interesting one. Now, why has he risen from being radioactive politically to being a part of a Netanyahu government? Well, uh, there are those who believe it is because he has also called for the implementation of what they call a retroactive French law into Israeli government that bars criminal investigations of a sitting prime minister and which Ben Giver wants to be enacted retroactively so that it can apply to Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, at first blush, we'd look at this and we'd say, wow, this seems a bit like a cover-up. But uh, to to judge the situation fairly, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was charged with corruption and bribery for, among other things, receiving cigars and champagne from a group that wanted to uh, build a submarine for Israel's defense forces. Mm. Uh, there was no uh, quid pro quo ever proven, uh, you know, and sending someone cigars and champagne seems like a, a fairly meager gesture <laughs> in order to put your political career on the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the charges against Netanyahu, uh, you know, again, it depends who you listen to. The Jerusalem Post is obviously kind of anti Netanyahu, mm. but even they will admit that the charges against him have been kind of vague. Uh, individuals who've uh, testified against him have indicated that they were a bit coerced into testifying, the idea that they would lose their positions and so forth. So, you know, there you go. But uh, on the surface of it, it does appear that uh, bringing this coalition together, the price of that. Uh, the price of a, an individual like Itamar Ben-Giver being given such an influential position in Israel uh, is the idea that he would uh, vote for this uh, provision and argue for this provision that would provide political cover, for lack of a better term, for Benjamin Netanyahu. And I say that as a person who's been uh, pretty sympathetic to uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. I think Netanyahu's policies have uh, benefited Israel and their security. But like they say, uh, if you've ever heard the old expression, um, you know, you don't want to really find out how the sausage gets made. Mm. Uh, it really does apply to parliamentary politics, as you probably know, Dave, from watching it happen in uh, jolly old England. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so anyway, uh, this is, uh, you know, he's received some, some criticism, obviously, uh, for this. But there's another individual that's uh, involved with this that is uh, also uh, going to be uh, a, uh, a kind of a lightning rod of, uh, of controversy in all of this. Uh, it is not just Itamar Ben-Giver. Uh, it is also the head of the other uh, religious uh, party that has aligned itself uh, with Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, this fellow is name is Bezalel uh, Smotich. It's easy for me uh, to say there, but uh, the interesting thing about him is that he may very well end up being defense minister. And and again, Smotrich, uh, I guess 
if I slow down and pronounce it correctly, uh, has uh, his party has made some very interesting statements, uh, including the idea of going back on what is called the so-called so-called Cotel deal. Now, the Cotel is another name for what we would call the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. Uh, the Orthodox uh, control and manage this this site, but the Cotel deal allowed. Uh, reformed and conservative Jewish groups to be able to meet regularly and control uh, two sites just adjacent to the Western Wall area, uh, Robinson's Arch and the outer area beyond the actual area adjacent to the Western Wall. Uh, That has created a lot of uh, stress and strain and friction uh, between the Orthodox and the ultra-Orthodox and these individuals they would consider to be less than committed uh, to uh, classical Judaism. Uh, apparently, uh, Smotrich uh, is open to revisiting this deal. But wait, there's more. Mm. Smotrich's party, although Smotrich has been rather coy about expressing this himself, Smotrich's party has uh, made no bones about the fact that they feel that the so-called status quo agreement that governs the uh, Temple Mount area itself needs to be revisited. Now, for those of you who don't under, uh, know what the uh, status quo agreement is, is that uh, when Israel took over uh, the Temple Mount area in 1967, uh, prime, uh, the uh, Israeli Defense uh, Forces General uh, Moshe Dayan said, we have come to our holiest site. We will never abandon it again. Well, the Arabs fully believed that what was going to happen is that the two major shrines on the Temple Mount, which you and Sean, you and I, Sean, have visited before, mm. they are the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, would be bulldozed and the way would be made for the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. The winner goes the spoils. Mm. Well, you would think that was going to happen, but Moshe Dayan, who was a very secular Jew, not a religiously observant one, uh, looked around and said, I know how we can have peace in our time, pardon the Neville Chamberlain uh, reference, if we give this particular site to uh, the Arabs to oversee, mm. particularly Jordan to oversee. And, and, and if you visit the uh, Temple Mount area, one of the things you will see on the uh, eastern side of the Temple Mount facility are these uh, amazing divots in the uh, walls of the walled city that are the remnants of where Jordanian troops were firing heavy automatic weapons against the Israelis there during this particular conflict. Well, they thought that by allowing the Jordanian government to oversee the Temple Mount itself and these two shrines of Islam that suddenly and interestingly were elevated in their significance uh, once Israel took control of Jerusalem. They really didn't care a whole lot about them prior to that time, but suddenly they became, what, the third uh, most significant uh, shrine in Islam? Second, right behind the Kaaba itself. Okay, well, uh, there's the the Kaaba, and then uh, there's Mecca and Medina, and then... Where those are located, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the, the, the bottom line is Israel thought they were buying peace. Well, nothing of the sort has happened. Mm-hmm. If you ever take a trip up on the Temple Mount, you know that the Waqfa, W-A-Q-F is how that's spelled, uh, which are the Jordanian Muslims that oversee the Temple Mount. Very unsavory individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't really like 
the idea that uh, not only non-Muslims, but Christians are visiting this particular site. And so they will try their best to be as inhospitable as possible. They will assign a, uh, a mind guard, for lack of a better term, to follow you around. And if your guard happens to mention the words Temple Mount, how do they respond? They correct you with intense fervor and passion and say it is not the Temple Mount, it is Al-Aqsa, which means the center. Yeah, so uh, if you're not dressed properly as a woman, <laughs> they'll come along and uh, kick you off the mount or make you wear a beach towel if they don't feel like mm. uh, you're modest enough. Uh, couples holding hands have had them have members of the walk come up and hit them with sticks. I have seen this happen wow. while we've been up there. Uh, so it's, it's a pretty harsh and intense place. And if you're Jewish and go up there, you think, you know, and let's face it, there's a vested interest of the Jordanians wanting to have, uh, Christian tourists visit Jordan and, and so on. If that's how you're treated by people are friendly, just imagine if you're Jewish and you go up there, mm. no love lost whatsoever. So the bottom line is this, and this is why this is so interesting prophetically, uh, I don't know if Smotrich is going to moderate his views. A lot of times when individuals get into actual positions of power, they want to preserve their positions of power, and so they will moderate some of their views that uh, they threw out as red meat to their, their followers to get them to vote for them. We see this happen in our politics quite a bit as, as well. Uh, but the, the thing I think uh, you may see is he may moderate those views, but his coalition, his uh, group, the Religious Zionism Party, uh, has stood for the idea of abrogating the status quo agreement with Jordan and returning the Temple Mount to Jewish oversight. Uh, what that means as far as the rebuilding of a temple is concerned uh, is left to the imagination, whether it would be instead of the wakfa, you would have uh, Jewish people overseeing this site. But, Sean, how would the average Muslim react to a development like that? However, they're told to, as far as their religion is concerned, and this is important for all of those listening, there is actually no mention of Jerusalem and the Al-Aqsa Mosque in the Quran itself. The reason why the tradition attributes this as to be a holy site is because after Muhammad's death, it is not historically verified, but it is claimed that one of Muhammad's successors conquered the area and thus established it and clarified it as the direction of prayer that was being set towards Jerusalem. However, in Jerusalem, it's referred to as the farthermost mosque, which, by the way, there was no mosque built at the time Muhammad had this vision, let alone his experience in what was called the night journey, the mirage, if you will. But what's important to note about this is that the Muslim sources are, for the most part, not read by the average Muslim. It is assumed to have been read and understood by their sheikhs, their scholars, and their imams, or their leaders. And what's important to note is that despite what Christianity ought to be, there are Christians who model this sort of pattern and lifestyle. I just believe whatever my pastor tells me and that settles it, that should not be you. You shouldn't take our word for it. You shouldn't let us co-opt you or coerce you or just hand off to you your belief in Jesus. We all need to give a reason for the hope that is within us, not that is within our pastor. That being said, it is the opposite in the world of Islam. If they say that Muhammad had his uh, ascension into heaven on the back of a winged donkey, uh, 
on the site where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is built today, then they will believe it. If they claim that this is an affront to Islam and that any Jewish uh, holding over previously owned Muslim lands is grounds for international war and another jihad, they will listen. They will follow these violent and these extremist tendencies down to the roots of their founder because the foundation of the religion of Islam is the violent conquest of three groups of people. First is what's called Ahlul Kitab, which is Arabic for the people of the book. Jews and Christians, the Torah and the Gospel are the books in question. If you are a secular Jew, they don't care. Because note, if you are a member of the United States, you are considered a Christian in their eyes simply because, note, their imams tell you that that is what you are. There is no distinction between your religious and your national identity. There is no clarification of the Muslim sources and what they actually say. It is all handed down to them by their leaders, and their leaders have wanted and continue to desire what their founder, what their religious leaders, and what their God have wanted from the beginning, and that is the extermination of the Jewish people and the persecution of anyone who calls on the name of their Messiah. So understand that when we're dealing with this, it's always been the same from the beginning. There is no peace. They should not. This is a quote from the Muslim uh, Islam's primary sources. You should not cry for peace when you ought to be uppermost. This is the call to slaughter that has been at its foundation from the beginning, which is why I personally, and I exhort all of you to as well, have taken on myself to study intensely the religion of Islam so that I can engage with them on terms that they will hopefully at least respect. Because when it comes down to it, most Muslims are very decent people. They're made in the image and likeness of God. But they're following the dictates of people who are modeling the heart of their God, and that is the father of lies, who was a murderer from the beginning. And we see its fruits today. Our prayers should be for those who have fallen into the trap of Islam, not to be under the yoke and the literal mental enslavement of these religious leaders that would use them as little more than cannon fodder simply because of political egg on their face. There is no historical backing, there is no religious consistency, and there is no reality apart from the somewhat suggested potential for you to be spared hellfire eventually in Islam, and yet these people are willing to kill for it. Now imagine that level of passion, but for someone to, uh, to literally dedicate their lives to a God who's actually real, who loves them, who died for them, who said that you're to put away your sword and instead to love all people as I have loved you. I can speak from experience and can give you names for the rest and remainder of the broadcast of the ex-Muslims who have made awesome Christians. It's an uphill journey, it is a difficult journey, but we need to understand that at the foundation of this, we see spiritual blindness, we see the heart of Satan personified in our day and age, and we need to be able to engage with it. If you encounter Muslims, first don't assume that they're terrorists, but second, <laughs> under <laughs> but understand that their religion teaches terrorism. So if we can distance one from the other and lead them to a saving relationship with Jesus, Understand that we are creating not only something that heaven rejoices over, but also something that God has used powerfully, not just throughout the ages, but especially in this last century. And now has never been a greater time to do it because at this time, 
Even Muslim leaders and speakers have acknowledged that with the popularization of the Muslim sources, where the good people are finding out what their religion actually teaches, they are predicting, and I quote, an avalanche of apostasy. And we need to be able to pick that up because we don't want these people to simply go to hell from another angle. We want them to know the Messiah, that we want them to know the God who loves them, who proved it in a moment of history, and to ultimately give them a better option on how to submit to God apart from the whims of these genocidal lunatics. So understand that, understand and make no apologies for it, and for those jihadis watching who want to uh, cut all of our heads off, I'm, I'm the target, just, just putting that out there. I'm the one studying your sources, and I'm the one who's willing to engage with you, who cares about you enough to dedicate time in my life to respect your sources enough to take them seriously, oftentimes more than they themselves do, and in order to do so because I want you in heaven with me, not dragged down to hell by the liar and the thief and the murderer that was the prophet of Islam and the God that he was deceived by. Well, there you go. (laughs) So bottom line is this. It does look like there is going to be this uh, 65-seat coalition, uh, Mm. a red wave, for lack of a better term, uh, in Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu will be the prime minister again. Uh, Again, uh, uh, the the, uh, word on the ground is that uh, the leaders of both of these coalition parties that are going to come alongside Benjamin Netanyahu's party, Likud, uh, want to get the ball rolling as quickly as possible. Traditionally, after the election results are finalized, uh, there is an eight-day period of time that goes on, and then uh, the president of Israel, which is largely a ceremonial position, mm-hmm. uh, asks the uh, winning coalition to form a government. Uh, usually there's that cooling down period and everybody takes a break, but uh, they are so interested in hitting the ground running in all of this that uh, the uh, individuals that we have mentioned uh, want to have a confab with Benjamin Netanyahu to have a uh, government put together, including a full list of cabinet-level positions. Uh, whether, as I said, some of these cabinet-level positions are going to be moderated uh, going on uh, into the future, uh, we're going to have to see. But uh, definitely, uh, the status quo around the Temple Mount will probably change uh, as a result of the interests of these two right-leaning, orthodox-leaning parties. Uh, We'll we'll see what goes on with the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, the Kotel Agreement that Israel has among these different groups Mm -hmm. will probably be adjusted. It'll be very interesting to see if uh, the uh, law, the French law, that uh, doesn't allow a sitting prime minister to be brought up on charges uh, is uh, brought into uh, play. Uh, There is also uh, the idea that these charges may, in fact, uh, be thrown out uh, uh, going forward. But we'll have to see exactly what happens with all of this. But uh, the next eight days or so will be very interesting uh, and uh, very pivotal as far as Israel is concerned. Uh, judging, I'm just giving my two cents worth here, judging on what I've seen from Benjamin Netanyahu in the past, uh, he definitely is uh, a, a man uh, who has Israel's uh, best interests in heart, at heart. He has been very open-minded, very open to evangelicals. Both of these other religious parties, not so much. Mm. Uh, they, uh, you know, uh, one of the, the charges uh, that was made during the campaign against Jair Lapid 
the caretaker prime minister that was running the show was horror of horrors. His brother-in-law was a Jew who believed Jesus was the Messiah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, well, how all this shakes out, we're going to see. Obviously, Israel doesn't want to offend uh, evangelical Christians because of tourism, because of the support that evangelicals generally give to Israel. So it will be very interesting to see whether the rhetoric uh, that these parties are known for uh, and uh, the actual uh, governance that happens as a result of these people being in power uh, happens. But it does appear with this 65-member uh, coalition that is being put together, very solid uh, mm-hmm. coalition. Like I said, it would be the rough equivalent of you know, 55 seats uh, in our Senate. Uh, that is going to bring, I think, stability to Israel, and we can all be thankful for that. It does appear that uh, Israel and uh, the average person in Israel is tired of uh, the uh, violence that has gone on and the Mm. lack of security that has gone on. Mm. Uh, I think that's probably reflective in what's going on here. And again, uh, the uh, increased uh, allegiance between Iran and Russia going on as a result of the Ukraine uh, conflict is something that is probably driving the people of Israel in that particular uh, direction as well. Security, uh, peace, the idea of uh, economic issues, uh, the, the, the bread and butter issues, I think, that any uh, government, uh, whether it's in Israel or here in the United States, has to deliver on, I think has, uh, has pushed in this direction. People mm-hmm. are saying we don't want another season of instability. We want a solid government in place, uh, solid enough to be able to take some bumps and bruises and still get policy through, budgetary issues through, and so on. Uh, the most interesting things to, to watch out for, though, are what is going to be the def- des- deposition of uh, the Temple Mount? Uh, is this going to um, go forward? I think a guy like Benjamin Netanyahu because he's got to curry favor with the United States as far as defense issues and so on, is not going to go that far. Mm-hmm. I, I really believe prophetically uh, it's going to take the Antichrist and his strong covenant that he's going to make with many, uh, described in Daniel chapter 9, that is going to change the status quo agreement and uh, allow the Jews to rebuild their temple on its historic site. It would be very unlikely to me uh, with the, the winds of politics geopolitically and so on, blowing the way they are right now, uh, to, to see something that radical take place. I think what you're going to see is a, a continuation of what Netanyahu did well, and that is uh, the Abraham Accords, uh, the uh, alliance militarily and economically uh, with the Saudis. And I think you may see, uh, after this uh, government is sworn in and up and running, the Saudis joining officially into the Abraham Accords because Things are heating up so much with Iran and Russia to the north. So pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It'll be very interesting to see what happens with the Temple Mount. But uh, again, uh, very uh, interesting developments going on there. Uh, Whether it ends up being a coalition of 62 seats, uh, which is a worst-case scenario, or 65 seats, which would be a real statement. Uh, Very interesting things happening in Israel right now. Indeed, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for that that update we have questions you guys ready to delve in yeah to those yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we have a question from you ready Craig. Sean you ready yeah. ready <laughs> are you ready <laughs> yeah. he was born ready yeah huh. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah probably true 
have a question from Craig. Hey, Craig, thank you for joining our broadcast and for your question. Uh, his question is, when Satan is locked up for a thousand years in the pit, are all the demons with him or are they left to continue their works? Please say it's the former. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it's not true. No, I'm just kidding. When it comes to Satan being bound in the abyss, um, understand he's the only spiritual entity mentioned as being locked in and for that length of time. If there were any others and we needed to know, we would be told. But for what it's worth, I think the most consistent biblical approach towards the supernatural is one that focuses on Jesus, not the enemy. However, since you asked, um, understand that the figurehead that Satan serves as not only an adversary, that's what a devil is, but also kind of the driving force, the general coordinating the efforts of spiritual warfare on this earth. Uh, without their leader, they're essentially going to be reduced to the same state we saw and would expect from when another factor has been introduced to this world, not just the removal of their leader, quote-unquote, but the introduction of their greatest enemy. Uh, when Jesus is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, that just won't be in a political sense and borders, but in a spiritual sense as well, that the, if there are adversaries that are still wandering around in this world, that their influence and capacity to act will be about as limited as my capacity to fly. Yeah. It's just not going to be the law of the land. So mm -hmm. when it comes to whether more spiritual entities than Lucifer are thrown into the abyss, we do know there are entities occupying it right now. Revelation 9 details uh, an interesting uh, posse in there, yeah. as well as uh, other entities that are bound at certain places and unable to act until they have permission. I think that that is the trend we'll see going forward, that no adversarial, that's what demonic means, um, activity is going to be allowed to take place during the millennium apart from the other two factors that fall into play whenever anything goes wrong in this right. world. We won't have the devil, but we will have the flesh, and we will have our fallen mm. nature but I repeat myself. So if we understand that those without Christ will be given the freedom to accept or reject Jesus, the influence at which that evil will purvey in this world and their capacity to act on it will be very, very limited for the thousand years. Why? Because Jesus is on the throne in more ways than one. But if on the other hand we're to ask the question, so why then was Satan thrown in to begin with? Well, we're noting with his reintroduction, it allows that sort of evil to be organized and demonstrated and acted upon in a way where evil is once and for all fully removed. But we also understand as well, don't go beyond what the text says, If and even the enemy himself can't act without permission in his rebellious state, we should note the demons will be doing that, uh, I guess, following those uh, rules as well. Yeah, I, I think that uh, that really hits it. You know, in the Left Behind series books, uh, they talked about uh, those in the thousand-year reign uh, becoming intrigued with the other light yeah. uh, and it was kind of an underground sort of a thing like hey you know there's there could be more to this than than, than just what jesus is telling us kind of a thing uh, you know it doesn't seem like there was any demonic organization behind all of that man did okay all by himself as far as being rebellious against god mm. yeah. yeah my yeah. pastor back in england used to say most days satan doesn't have to get out of bed we do a good <laughs> enough job by so <laughs> yeah yeah and and you know people always ask the question you know if if people can see jesus you know and the knowledge of the lord covers the earth like the waters cover the sea who in the world would rebel against that who in the world would turn their back on perfect government and perfect provision and perfect peace and perfect justice well those who were born 
from people who survived the tribulation period who never really saw what the old world was like. Uh, you know, we always think that uh, we can do it better than we could figure it out. Right. Uh, you know, that wasn't true Satan worship. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's never been attempted. Uh, so I think that's what we'll see at, at the end there. Uh, right. You know, you don't need the wicked one to cause people to behave in a fallen way, but it does appear that Satan does organize it at the end, doesn't he? Yeah, and that he's doing so right now. But if we're talking about the details we're given in Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians 2, I believe, uh, noting the him as the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age who has blinded their eyes in 2 Corinthians, uh, all of these things are just noting he right. plays a figurehead role, but even then they don't act without permission. And if Jesus is ruling and reigning from the city of Jerusalem, uh, I think that uh, we're going to be playing by new rules, and so will they. Yeah, I, I agree. Great. Craig, thank you. Thank you for your question. Great question. Uh, another question that came in uh, through you two. Good evening, gents. Good evening to you as well. I don't know how to say your name, if that's your name on your tag. <laughs> I don't know how to, how to say that. Usernames are uh, fun. Usernames <laughs> are fun indeed, so yeah. I won't attempt it. Um, but his, the question is, uh, what are, I don't know if you guys have read the book of Revelation recently. <laughs> we're yeah. going through that on Wednesday evenings in yeah. our service here but uh, what or who are the two witnesses in Revelation eleven three? is the question yeah I think uh, even that uh, what or who uh, shows that there's some confusion in all of this mm. uh, some people will say that these are symbolic of uh, the church down through time serving as God's representative uh, but uh, you know, once again, when we come to the book of Revelation, one of the things that we've discovered, especially through our tour that we've been taking on Wednesday nights, and by the way, that, that culminates tonight. I encourage you to... Are you sure? I, I think so. We've only okay, got a few you heard verses. It here first. We, uh, we've, we've only got a few last verses to get through, but some really important <laughs> uh, final statements <laughs> to be made. Uh, you know, I, uh, one of the titles I thought we could use for this study is, Are You Dancing on the Edge of Damnation? Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a way you can do that, uh, and mm -hmm. you definitely don't want to. So you have to join us at 6.30 yep. to find out what that's all about. You're at Calvary Christian Fellowship. Yeah, 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 got time. yeah there, there, there's, a, there's a teaser for you. Yeah. But uh, when you read the book of Revelation, one of the things we discover is this. Some people just think that the whole thing is a bunch of these weird symbols that have been dumped in a wearing blender and turned on puree, and that anybody can read anything out of it, and you know who knows what any of this means. And maybe you've even heard that from pastors. But Sean, haven't we seen that the Book of Revelation, although it does contain symbols, it's really good about telling you when you're dealing with symbols, right? Mm. And those symbols couldn't be explained more clearly if they were trying to, under the assumption that you understand the revelation of Jesus Christ is put at the end of the book collection for a reason. If a reference is going to be made, a symbol is going to be described, an allusion is going to be employed, there's a two-rule system. If it hasn't been explained before, it's about to be. For example, in Revelation chapter 1, there was a symbol that hadn't been explained in Scripture yeah. in that sense. Jesus was walking among the seven golden lampstands, and in his right hand were seven stars. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, read the end of Revelation chapter 1. It literally tells you. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Any questions? Yeah. <laughs> but if, on the other hand, we note the rest of the chapter, right. when it goes on to describe Jesus' eyes like a flame of fire, him clothed in a robe down to the feet, his uh, um, hair being white like wool, and out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword, and so forth. Well, 
Anyone who's read the Bible proper would probably recognize one, if not all, of those things. Whenever God's presence is described in the Old Testament, particularly in the books of Isaiah and 1 Kings, the sinners of Zion feared because they said, who can withstand this consuming fire? That the judgment, that the wrath of God, the scrutiny of God, that right. eyes go to and fro throughout the earth. We even see this used in the New Testament, that your faith in being refined as through a fire will note this. 1 Corinthians 3 and so forth. We could talk about out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. That's a word-for-word quote in Hebrews 4 describing the word of God. It would be weird if Jesus had a sword coming out of his mouth, yeah. <laughs> but if he's God and words come out of his mouth, then the word of God being introduced as a sword does in fact follow. It's using references before, but if it has been explained before, it won't be, and that's the second rule. So when we read Revelation chapter 11 and verse 1, actually, yeah, let's just start in verse 1 because this is, again, a word-for-word quotation. It says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise, measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, this is before we even get to the witnesses. That's Ezekiel 42. Yeah. Word for word. Yeah. It's yeah. noting the exact same thing that he was told to do for the same reasons and with the same stipulation. If you've read that chapter and note the transition to 43 is significant, what is the difference? That this temple didn't have God dedicating it. He would come to cleanse it. Well, what had to be cleansed? It goes on to note that they'll be tra- uh, treading it underfoot. They'll be right. dishonoring it for three and a half years, 42 months if you want to do the math. But it continues on in verse 3 and noting if this is a quotation of the Old Testament, and I want to pick up the theme, verse 3 says, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, sackcloth, not too relevant. It just notes a state of mourning, uh, deliberately making yourself uncomfortable for the sake of expressing an outward uh, sense of grieving. Mm-hmm. But you go to the next verse. The individual asks the question, and you get the answer. These are the two olive trees, and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And it goes on to note details that will identify them as whose, not as what's. Now, once again, what is that a reference to? Because it doesn't go on to explain the explanation. It almost as if this is passing the buck, if you will. What is the significance of the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before God? Once again, like Ezekiel 42, that's a word-for-word quotation of the book of Zechariah. When right. it makes yep. the reference to these things, it is his two what? Anointed ones, not things, yes. ones, and what was their purpose as described in Zechariah? It was to return the Spirit of God back to his people, right. which we see taking place in Revelation 7. Hint, hint. But it goes on to note details about them. And if anyone wants to harm them, this is verse 5, Fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. Now that's a reference. Who in the entire Old Testament was known for calling down fire on people who threatened their lives? Well, one in particular, his name was Elijah. Now do we have reason to think that Elijah literally will return? If you've read Malachi 3-4, through then yes, you would conclude that. But it doesn't stop there. It says, if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. How long was that again? Three and a half years. Who else prayed and made it so that it didn't rain for three and a half years, according to James 5 and 1 Kings? 
I believe that was Elijah. Okay, so we're narrowing this down to a literal <laughs> I'm doing person. Doing good on Jeopardy today. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and uh, ding they, ding. And here's another one. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now, who in the Old Testament turned water to blood? Well, it was God, but it was under the uh, reign of Moses. So things were done that only Elijah and only Moses have done. A reference to literal people with a specific purpose in mind, fulfilling multiple scriptures throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, with a heavy emphasis on biblical prophecy. And John is told, these two witnesses are those olive trees. What were the olive trees? It's been explained already. Yeah. Now, have the two witnesses been explained? No, this was their first introduction. Have the two olive trees and the two lampstands been explained? Yes, they have. So you need to be able to do your homework and say, this is what's being referenced here. But it goes on to give you further details. Now, the only thing that would make this still unclear is if you made assumptions as to how to handle the text beforehand. Now, my assumption, full disclosure, is that it means what it says. That if there's a reference that it's been explained and that the explanation bears more authority within Scripture than without. And if my explanation without is that, well, there can't be a literal Elijah and a literal Moses because there's no afterlife. These guys are gone and disappeared. The Bible would disagree with you. If your assumption is, well, God can't be using these people because it was a promise made to the Jewish people. The Jewish people don't exist anymore. God only working through the church. The book of the Bible will disagree. These books of the Bible would disagree with you. If, on the other hand, you make the assumption, okay, it's given these explanations. It makes these references to these explanations. If I let that be my authority, then I can pretty much well conclude, and note there is grounds for debate. Some people think that uh, the second figure is going to be Zerubbabel because of the book of Haggai. Others think that it is uh, going to be Enoch because of Genesis chapter 5, I believe. Noting yeah, that he's the only the guys, uh, Elijah and and Enoch, the only ones who didn't die. But yeah. among those who don't make what's called preterist assumptions, uh, they would almost unanimously agree one of these guys is going to be literally Elijah. The reason we would say it's Moses is because of that theme of what's within the chapter itself referencing what they do. And there's another interesting precedent that, to me, um, gives clarity on this. You know, I think Chuck Smith talked about the possibility of it being uh, Zerubbabel, uh, because of the references in Zechariah and in Haggai. Uh, but you know, to me, the thing that convinces me that first of all, it's Elijah, that's a non-starter. Yeah. You know, that that's pretty clear, but the, not along with the idea of turning water to blood and, and so on, calling down plagues like Moses did in his ministry. Uh, there's the kicker that we find in Matthew 17, when in, uh, Jesus told his disciples that not many days hence, uh, they would see the the Son of Man coming in his kingdom and in his glory. Well, he takes Peter, James, and John up on Mount Hermon. And uh, we are told that Jesus' appearance was transfigured, literally metamorphosized, so that his, son, his face shone like the sun, his clothing was like lightning. And suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began speaking with him. And I love the reference in Luke. They began speaking to him of his... Uh, Departure, exodon. literally in Greek, his exodon, <laughs> a little hint there, he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. And then the glory of God covers the mountain. Uh, you know, Peter puts his foot in his mouth, says, Should we uh, build tabernacles as the kingdom actually arrived? Uh, God says, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly they're alone with Jesus up there again. So, this kingdom preview, if you will, 
that uh, they experienced on Mount Hermon, I think gives us the insight into Revelation chapter 11 that Moses and Elijah were there at the first coming of Jesus. They are going to be there again to precede and prepare the way for the second coming. So that's clear. Yep. Yeah. Hope that helps you out. Thank you so much for your question. Have a couple of questions from Yari, which I think we could probably answer them together. I can throw them in together. He asks, um, what did Jesus mean when he said, if you do not forgive others, your heavenly father won't forgive you? And his second question is, what is the danger of holding hatred in your heart? Does it make it difficult for God to answer prayer or being in a relationship with him with hatred in your heart? Yeah, you know, I think, uh, you know, the, the difficulty that people get into with this question is it's like something that can create some real spiritual tail chasing mm. and some real doubts about salvation. Mm. Because if you're a genuine believer in Christ and somebody does something horrible and reprehensible to you, you're going to feel hatred in your heart, right. you know, and to tell yourself that you don't, uh, I think is kidding yourself. And so does that mean uh, you chase down the rabbit hole. Well, I guess if I feel hatred in my heart, uh, I'm I'm not a believer. Well, no. A uh, couple things I think can give clarity uh, along this line because a lot of believers have beaten themselves senseless with this. Uh, you know, first of all, should we as believers nurture, tend to, uh, strengthen the idea of hatred in our heart? Mm-hmm. The difference between a genuine believer and a non-believer is that when a believer feels hatred in their heart, they know something's wrong. Mm. You know, when a non-believer feels hatred in their heart, they will say, no, I'm right. I'm righteous to feel this hatred, and Mm. I'm going to uh, express my hatred, and hence about 90% of the traffic on Twitter uh, goes on these days. But, you know, the Bible has a a very different perspective on this. You know, and I think when we focus on hatred, uh, sometimes I think we get led astray. We need to focus more on the opposite. In First John chapter 4, we are told, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, and that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, it goes on from there, but I think here's the deal. Um, You know, it's like saying, all right, I'm in a dark room. What am I going to do? Am I going to try to drive out the darkness or am I going to turn on the light? Mm. Um, You know, I've been in situations where, uh, you know, I I went through a really rough time in my life. I found some people were, uh, you know, gossiping about me and, and it just really set me back. And, and I remember just going out for a run in the far hinterlands of Irvine and, and just pouring out my heart before God and just saying, God, I can't kid you about this. I hate these people. I hate them. That's all I feel in my heart right now. Mm-hmm. It's just I hate them. I hate anything good that happens to them. I hate their house pets. I've got nothing but hatred in my heart for mm-hmm. them. And then once I kind of expressed that, it was like this weird picture came to my mind of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying uh, that the Lord would would uh, strengthen him. You know, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. An angel was sent to strengthen him. And, you know, and this thought crossed my mind. Well, if Jesus needed God's help to do the right thing in the Garden of Gethsemane, what makes me think I can do the right thing, that is love people instead of hate them, in my own power and strength? And that was my problem. I was trying to do the right thing 
in my own power and strength. And it never works. It'll take you for a while, but sooner or later you run out of strength. Yep. And so, you know, I, I, I prayed a really life-changing prayer at that point. I said, Lord, you know my heart. You know I've got nothing but animosity towards these people. But I believe Jesus died for their sins and loves them, and I'm willing for you to love through me. Mm. And boy, when I prayed that prayer, I felt like a 100-pound weight went off my shoulders. Mm. And I can't say that immediately I, you know, I was happy all the day and I thought nothing but, you know, it, it was a gradual process, you know. First it was like, uh, Lord, you be good to them like you've been good to me. And you don't let me get away with anything. And then finally it was just like, Lord, just be good to them. It just can't be easy living your Christian life when all you do is gossip and tear people down. And just convict them like you convicted. Finally, I just was like, Lord, I don't even care if you convict them. Just be good to them. Yeah. And, and I realized then, and it took a while, it took weeks to get to that place. But I realized that I was no longer carrying a burden God never called me to bear. Mm. And, uh, you know, I'd say if we struggle with the idea of hating people that have done us wrong, understand you're never going to beat that by trying to do the right thing for God. God is willing to love people through us. And that's where I think we find real liberation, not by the works of the law, even if it's the right thing to do, but by the work of God's Holy Spirit. Anything you add to that? Yeah. Thanks, Ben. Okay. What a great way to end our show today. Thank you so much for, for being part of it, for all your questions. If you are looking looking for somewhere to fellowship, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, as we mentioned, we'll be finishing up the book of Revelation tonight. I have it on good authority. These two dudes will be teaching. Um, so come along. Uh, we're on just, if you're in the Tucson area, right on the west side of the freeway uh, by Prince and I-10 right there, Calvary Christian Fellowship. We'd love to see you. If not, we will see you tomorrow, same time, same place. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Sean. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.